everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. Today, we are going to be talking about a very interesting book. Now, just to give you guys a brief background, if you visit uh, this YouTube page or you are a regular listener, viewer of the Charvak Podcast, you know I have quoted Chinmay's research work a lot. So I actually did not know Chinmay was on Twitter, guilty as charged. I was reading his book again, uh, and that's the book we are going to be discussing today. It is India Moving a History of Migration. And then somebody tagged me on Twitter. He's like, Kushal Bhai, you can talk to the author itself. And then I was like, damn, I did not even know the author was on Twitter. So I reached out to Chinmay. I told Chinmay, Bhai, ao, meri podcast pe ao, baat karo. And Chinmay was kind enough to agree. So Chinmay, thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I've been following you for many years. So uh, it's an honor for me to be on your podcast. And a delightful name as well, Charvak, since uh, I've uh, at one point of time tried to re read different philosophies and Charvak is obviously one of those interesting things. Yeah. Th thank you. But Chidmay, for, uh, for the noob uh, question, I have to start with this uh, because this is your first time on the podcast. So tell everybody a little bit about your journey too, because I think people, you know, what happens is when they know the person a little bit, then it gives them like a personalized look. So please don't mind me because this is your first time I'm asking you to do this. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm from Mumbai. I was born in the Mecca of cricket called Shivaji Park. Where oh, nice. Sachin Tendulkar, Vinod Kamli and all these greats have played. And my father was a professional cricketer. So for the longest time, obviously, like many people in India, I wanted to be a professional cricketer myself. Uh, and uh, I went to boarding school in Andhra Pradesh. I played cricket for the district out there. And pretty much life was all about cricket for the longest time until I came back to Bombay and realized I'm not that good in cricket. Uh, and then decided to, you know, uh, stick to studies. And I love maths. So I got myself a degree in maths and economics from a college called Guya in Bombay. Mumbai. Oh, Baju Baju, man, I'm Podar. Hey, I was in Podar in 11, 12, in fact. So, commerce say arts. So, we're from the SP Mandali <laughs> yes. uh, gang. <laughs> Long live uh, DP and SP. Absolutely. Uh, slow yeah. point and DP, Baju, uh, slow point, yes, <laughs> Absolutely. And full South Indian uh, migration ghettos out there. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, which later influenced my migration writing. I did a, a master's in London School of Economics and there I also uh, worked for a year in an investment bank and very quickly realized I'm not cut out for the corporate world. Uh, and I just love, I love time actually, to have time at my space where I can uh, get up whenever I want to and just do some creative stuff. So I thought academia, let try it. So I got myself uh, to IIM Bangalore when I did my PhD on uh, uh, economics, but actually it became about migration. Uh, and there... Uh, I started off trying to understand ki how do people send money. So people go to Canada, Italy, US, Gulf, they send back money. So I was trying to quantify this remittance economy. So that is how I started my work. And then I quickly realized that, okay, we know a bit of that, but we don't know anything about within India, how much money goes from Bombay to Bihar or Bangalore to you know UP and so on. So my whole PhD was about quantifying. So the first study which quantified the remittance economy of India, uh, and then I got interested in migration. So then I started into history. I realized that these migrations are not totally new. Even remittances have been happening for generation and generation. So eventually my thesis was you know, on migration history and remittance history, which then developed six years later into a book. But in between, then I went to Italy for a year where I worked uh, uh, as a researcher there. Then I was a house husband in the US for about two years, which also was a very interesting experience. 
uh, I got a lot of time to read and we had a young uh, child up there at that time. Uh, my wife was studying. Uh, and then moved to Hyderabad where as a faculty for two years. Um, and now I moved to I am Ahmedabad where I'm a, I've been a faculty for seven years. Uh, and this is a lovely institution because you can just you know, uh, uh, be yourself and uh, teach whatever you want, research whatever you want. So here I've established a course on business and economic history. So that's what I teach out here at Ahmedabad apart from courses in economics like macroeconomics. So I see myself as a, a lapsed cricketer and increasingly as a lapsed economist. Uh, who's doing a lot of stuff on history, uh, but broadly three disciplines, economics, demography, and history, something at the intersection of these three things. Um, and uh, also now help set up the, an archive. I'm huge into archives. So wherever I go, I ask, I archive help me, any institution I go, because I think it's very important to store history in a, in a systematic uh, manner. So more and more I'm getting into history. Yeah. So cricket, batting, bowling? I used to be a leg spinner. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and also batting, I still love batting. The campus fair, of course, I play. I was a sports chair on campus last year. In fact, the first nice. time I came to I am Ahmedabad was as the captain of the I am Bangalore football team. So I I didn't know then uh, that I was going to come here as a faculty academic. Uh, but uh, but sports has always been an important part of life. Uh, nowadays, I tend to play more of badminton, tennis, uh, less uh, the fast running sports. Uh, but uh, but it's been it's I I have huge privilege in living on a campus. So uh, it's an amazing atmosphere to kind of uh, live on. I don't, I don't, we don't own a car. We have three bicycles and we just cycle on campus. Very, very idyllic life right now. Wow. So you, you are truly uh, in a, in a unique league of your own because cycling uh, uh, in, in India is, uh, is either done by people who can't afford a car or is either done by people who have the privilege of space. So you seem to have the privilege of space. Yeah, absolutely. Totally privileged uh, academic. I think the Honorable Finance Minister had made a point once saying car sales are going down because people are not buying cars because of, you know, Uber, Ola. And I am that one one sample point person <laughs> who's not buying cars. Absolutely. I agree with you. Like in Mumbai, there are occasions where I just don't use my own car anymore because uh, I'm like... Uh, Mumbai, as you know, parking is a big pain in the butt. And, uh, you know, we we can't. But, you know, I I, first of all, I want to commend uh, your book. I just loved it. I I say this with uh, all seriousness. I absolutely loved the book. And in fact, you know, I even tweeted it. Why why I loved this book uh, is that when you start your first chapter, you talk about uh, the Aryan migration theory. And I loved your epistemic humility where you said, look, there is something called the out of India theory. We should not dismiss it as flat earth. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, we should consider that part of the argument also. Like I am a very known uh, you know, critic of the South Russian homeland hypothesis. Personally, I don't, uh, I don't believe just because the South Russian hypothesis is wrong, out of India is right. I am more, you know, the Caucasus uh, region uh, is the origin of uh, the Proto-Indo-European. And in fact, you won't believe it. In the next few days, as we are speaking mm-hmm. right now, I'm going to do a detailed two to three hour podcast on just, I don't know if you've heard about mm-hmm. the new Hegarty et al. and the Lazaritis et yes, al. Yes, papers yes, that have come out. Yes. So I've been reading them quietly like a nerd. Yes. <laughs> and and I have another nerd friend who is a molecular biologist. So I'm going to Amazing. get him. And he has made a detailed presentation on how 
South Russia is pretty much dead. Now it's a battle between either Iran, Armenia or India. And I lean Iran, Armenia and uh, people can lean wherever they want to. It's such a fascinating debate. And uh, it's, you know, there's so many pieces of evidence slowly coming up. So I see it as a really curious researcher rather than going with like a, you know, set mind as the theory, you have to disprove this theory and so on. I think that and of course, there's genetics now, which is a new thing in the you know, 50 year debate. Uh, but there's also the stuff of languages and there's also the stuff of, you know, uh, hardcore archaeology and so on. I remember after writing this book, I, I was on a fellowship at uh, Harvard and I got to see the laboratory of David Reich. David yeah. Reich has written, you know, he's done a lot of work on the genetics. Uh, and he was telling to me, you know, I mean, you could see the sense of passion and curiosity in the among the people who work. I'm no expert on this time period, but uh, but I follow, like you, you know, very closely. Uh, and like this moon landing, one is always curious to know, okay, uh, ultimately it's about our roots. So it's, it's interesting to know of the uh, different possibilities of where it comes. Who knows, in 20, 30 years, you find a completely different theory. Say, you know, everyone originated in South America and then <laughs> completely change the whole discourse on human migration, ancient human migration. But as of now, we are, you know, piecing together at some point. And as I write in my book, you know, on balance, it seems that there's some folks who come from this particular region that you're describing, say Central Asia, uh, but who knows? Uh, the, this is the last word has definitely not been said on this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, just this big, and you know, I'm glad you started the book. The first chapter starts with this because people don't realize that inflow and outflow of people is the norm. It is yeah. not the aberration with this book on migration and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the essence of your book in many ways at a philosophical level was, listen, guys, people are going to move internally within the boundaries of a nation. They're going to go out of your donation, come to a nation. This is just the story of humanity exploring or as you know, uh, Star Trek Katha boldly going where no man has ever been before. Absolutely. Isn't that the history of migration is the history of humanity? Absolutely. And until we got this stupid document called the passport, it was quite actually not, I would not say simple, but very difficult to travel. But, uh, but that sense of spirit and adventure was, you know, much more say a thousand years back than it is today. Today, you know, if I want to go to Ukraine or Hungary, it's not quite, I mean, I'll have to sneak through many border controls and so on. Uh, it's of course true that even in the past you had border control that's, that's at a kind of kingdom level, but the spirit of travel was much more. I mean, I'm just thinking hundred years back, a guy like GRD Tata, you know, he just he the guy who got aviation to India in a big way. He just set off on a plane, and you know, he could if you read his Bible, autobiography, and you know, his memoirs, he would land in like airfields. It was just a spirit of travel and adventure, and of course, migration, systematic movement of people, uh, has a really long history. Uh, you can look at any kind of epoch. Uh, and the kind of thrill of going out, even this very, you know, many historians call it the dark age, indentured migration, people taken from Indian India to like plantation economies, Caribbean, Fiji, and, and many historians describe it as a very negative or dark period. And of course, plantation systems are bad. But the fact is that there was even there a spirit of adventure. A lot of people were choosing to go there because it's not like things back home were also you know, terrifically great and they were enjoying their labor conditions back home. So in multiple epochs, you can see that there's a thirst for travel. Of course, slavery is one hard st kind of stop line where you can't say stuff like, at least I don't think you can say stuff like, oh, these people wanted to be slaves or you know, stuff like that. Uh, it was clearly a very, very coercive system. And as I write in the book, slavery, unfortunately, has been around 
in many parts of the world, including India, uh, though arguably it stopped in India earlier than it stopped in the West. West it stopped in the 19th century, most of the places. Uh, but uh, but slave, it's, you know, forms of slave. So those are the really negative forms of migration, people being trafficked. In this women in particular, people forget that a lot of these were women who were trafficked as kind of sex slaves throughout history. Uh, and some of it still happens, but of course in small numbers. Uh, so migration, both voluntary and involuntary, and what we call as internal and international, has been going on for a long time. And when I wrote this book, you know, Kushal, the reason for writing this book was for the simple reason that this has not been written before. You have a lot of people who work on international migration, and you have a lot of people who work on internal migration. You have a lot of people who work on contemporary migration, and a few scholars who work on historical migration. And my objective in writing this book was to kind of piece together all these different forms of migration for one territorial region called India. By India, I mean the Indian subcontinent, uh, uh, and see you know what what emerges from this. And so that's what kind of uh, influenced uh, the writing of this book. And I had a great time writing. Uh, it took a long time. It was my first book backed on 10 years of research. My second book took 10 months to write. The first, first book was really, you know, real labor of love. Plus it took a long time to piece together all that I'd learned over 10 years of my research. Uh, so it's way past the deadline. But when it came out, I felt the satisfaction and I still get emails, you know, it's been five years since I've read the, uh, written the book. I get emails from people who said, you know, I, I didn't know why there were so, so many Marwadis in my town. Or, <laughs> I, I didn't know why there were so many Indians, you know, in South Africa. Uh, so I still get emails from around the world and that's very heartening because at the core, I think everyone is a bit curious to know where they've come from and the book makes a small contribution to that. Yeah, uh, on the slave trade bit also, now there is a lot of debate in India whether the word Dasa or Dasyu, mm -hmm. because I'll, I'll, I'll say where I'm coming from. Sure. Uh, I, I definitely believe there were atrocities in India's past. There is no debate on that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, the only debate is, uh, is this slavery as the uh, the American trade uh, uh, trade uh, in the form of literally buying and selling people? Or is this more because there is uh, indentured labor, which also bonded did not labor. bonded labor? Because it's not like these people had any rights, right? Yeah. And and as uh, Sigmund Freud would say, the story of humanity is the narcissism of the small differences. It's okay. like, you know, uh, horse manure, dog manure, both are manure, bonded yeah. labor, indentured labor, slavery, all three suck. Okay. I mean, Absolutely. for the record, before, you know, it doesn't matter because somebody from the left might take offense to that. Somebody from the right might take offense to something else. But uh, yeah. I don't know. Today is the world of offense taking. But the story of slavery, so how much in your, because your background is economics too, how much of a role did economic pressures take in all of these migrations and added to atrocities? Yeah, I think if you ask me, you know, what's the number one reason for why people move out, especially for work? I mean, if you, just to get the basics right, most people in India move for marriage. If you look at the census, the Almost every adult woman in India is a migrant because she yes. moves a village or a town upon marriage. So there are like more than 300 million women migrants in India as per the census. But when we think of migration, typically we're thinking of work-related and in the past maybe for war or trade or whatever. Uh, and when you think of those migrations, the first thing that you know impels people to move out in an economic framework is population density. Now, of course, this is a chicken and egg thing. You know, how does population density emerge in a particular place in the first place uh, and then how does it uh, lead to people going up but let me let me start with a modern example you know bihar and kerala right i mean if you look at development indicators very objectively we know that kerala is way ahead of bihar 
on almost every dimension right you look at human development index literacy per capita income yet they both have the same rates of outmigration right and when i tell people this people are just like zap because they say okay people are leaving bihar because of poverty but why are they leaving kerala and of course they're going from kerala to the gulf and of course many parts of india but what's common between bihar and kerala is extremely high population density and let me just you know tell you what the population density i'm looking at it is the density on rural land so not urban cities by definition are dense so we are looking at population density on not only rural land but arable land which means how much can be used for agriculture so broadly speaking as regions get dense and typically regions get dense because they are close to water sources it could be an ocean it could be a river that's why the whole genetic value is so dense in india but they emerge pressures and so the f- first thing is that there is only that much that agriculture can support i think that's like the number one economic law and that's the reason why most parts of the world people have moved away from agriculture into non agriculture and that movement is not only a structural occupational movement but a physical movement where people are leaving their farms and going to other places so whether you look at italians moving in the 19th century from italy to the us whether you look at biharis moving for indentured labor or to mumbai now or whether you look at keralaites moving to the gulf and so on the source is not really poverty per se it is that agriculture beyond a population as population grows beyond a point agriculture cannot support that many jobs and that's the fundamental reality and that's why in india you have madhya pradesh which is in between kerala and bihar but it's not as dense and that's why it does not generate that much out migration pressure so the starting point of almost all work migration in india is density and this is true historically as well and that is why you'll find that this gangetic hub of india has been an out migration zone for a really long time i mean some districts of india i'm saying 400 500 years ago so that's the starting point now connecting to slavery when regions get dense there's one theory you know uh, that because there's so many people you get a lot of caste division uh, and that caste division could lead to hierarchy again these are many possibilities we don't know the exact kind of chain of causality so historians point out for example the kaveri delta in tamil nadu uh was very rich historically the fertile but that fertility also meant that there were a lot of density and with density came caste division and strong hierarchy similarly with the gangetic valley and so on so there's one hypothesis that with these river deltas which generated high density you not only got migration but you got a class of labor which was then now it could be bonded labor it could be some form of slavery but the point you mentioned that there was no real wholesale trade of human beings unlike yes. what we saw in the transatlantic slave trade i think that's yes. a fair point to make and also in the indian case as i mentioned even with this there were certain forms of upward mobility possible so you have examples throughout indian history where people have even when slaves were brought from arabia you know people have broken out uh, and 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 become uh, you know nobles and, and so on i'll give you an example from my own institution i am amdabad which has a beautiful logo i am amdabad logo takes its a uh, uh, logo from the siddhi said jali from the siddhi uh, siddhi said jali mosque in amdavad old city now who are the siddhis these were ethiopian slaves brought yes. into india via uh, arabia and many of them got manumission which means they were freed and they became artisans and those artisans created this wonderful artwork which today is the logo of my institution right so it's like a direct connection between a slave trade of the past upward mobility from that slave trade and and then linked to my institutions so when i tell students this you know they say oh that's great uh, so ima has you know this culture of uh, upward mobility and i say that's true because students come in quite poor and then you know once they graduate from ima and they become quite rich so it's uh, kind of linked with that same uh, phenomenon 
In fact, you know, this entire discussion around the world does not appreciate the reality that, uh, you know, you mentioned genetics, but there is gene culture co-evolution always. The genetics affect the mimetics and the mimetics affect the genetics. It's, it is never one way or the other. It is always a back and forth. And people often, listen, this is the Charvak podcast, so I don't spare any religion before somebody thinks I, I, I'm, I am this or there. I mean, I, I am a very open guy when it comes to my criticism of religion. I am a Hindu by choice. I was born without choice. I was born a Hindu. I am a Hindu by choice today and I am a Charvak. So, abhi main baat karna shuru karta People often confuse why because the mimetics of the, the transatlantic slave trade had elements of their cultural, religious ideologies. As a humble student of religion who has read religion, who has read uh, Abrahamic texts, who has read Indian texts, there will be different kind of, uh, what should I call, shit shows across the world. They're all shit shows. That is not a debate here. They will be different. And this upward mobility, this matters a lot. And I'll and this is how I look at it. Now, you might be oppressed in one area in India. And, and nobody can deny that. Anybody who denies that is, is a liar. He, he, he or she or they or it, whatever they want to call themselves, is lying. But because of the decentralized nature of the Indian religious landscape, you could actually, you know, escape one place and go to another place. Now, one of the reasons I say that is I observed something unique in India. The same surname is in a different caste hierarchy. Now, a state you belong to, Gujarat. Most Patels that people know, they would associate them to be Patidar. But no. Patels are SC, Patels are OBC, two, they are the same. So, so what is this movement or in, in Maharashtra, you know, where you and I are originally from, right? Maharashtra, there is Razurkar, Mahazan, you know, these surnames have different movements. Now, why were they happening? Like this is for social scientists to do. But I have another question. Now, how much of climate change? has an impact on migration in the sense that, you know, in, in evolution, there is uh, there is this constant debate between two major behemoths. One was Stephen Jay Gould, one was uh, Richard Dawkins, where Richard Dawkins has always been gradualism, right? Evolution mm -hmm. happens in a very gradual, slow pace. And, and Gould was always like, nothing happens for a while. And then there is a period of punctuated equilibrium, as he used to call it. And then massive uh, changes happen at an evolutionary time scale. But when I was looking at your book, I started thinking when it comes to migration, migration usually happens in a gradual way, but there are periods of punctuated equilibrium. So, so how much of that is because of climate change? Like let's say IVC, right? We have old Harappan, mature Harappan and late Harappan. Now, why is there late Harappan climate change, right? So now what happens then? What did you find in your research there? Yeah, so and, and the, of course, climate change, you can talk at you know different epochs. You've started with the IVC. Uh, again, I'm no expert on that particular time period, but from what we seem to gather, there are a couple of things. One is one can make climate change as the deciding factor in all migrations. And that is also one has to be cautious about that because then you can say, okay, why did a person move from here to here? There was a drought or there was a flood. You know, these become like natural starting points. 
I want to emphasize something called as networks. And that is when people move, they are moving not like completely autonomous people, but they're moving through people they know. And that is very important to understand how a shock operates on them. So hypothetically, this is completely beyond my you know period expertise, but in the IBC period, suppose there was, I mean, I'm just trying to think how one would model this. Suppose there was a shock. Okay, there was a there was a, a you know massive climate change impact where people could not live out there and they start to move out. Now the question is, do they? It's most unlikely that they all died in one fine day. They started to move out. Now where do they go and how do they go in mass? Because this, we know now that this is a very large civilization occupying a large space. Uh, and for me, that becomes a very interesting thing because these guys tend to move with their own kind of people uh, and to new places where they form new identities, new you know practices, also taking something of their own. And India as a country over 2000 years, 3000 years is just full of these migrations, right? Uh, so these shocks, you know, you start with IBC, but let me come to some more recent shocks. For example, cyclones. Now this is a climatic shock. I won't call it climate change per se, but it's a climatic shock. Hugely happens in the Bay of Bengal. And one part of India which has been massively hit by this is what we call as coastal Odisha. And coastal Odisha has had a mass migration history now for about 150 years. You know, there's a districts like Ganjam, Katak, this whole belt. And back then in the late 19th century, they would go to Rangoon, they would go to Burma. Uh, and today they all go to Gujarat. I mean, not all, but a large part of them come to Gujarat. They take this Puriyokha Express, you know, one of the longest train journeys of India and come. Now, India's psychology, when you ask them, and I've interviewed these migrant workers, they say, okay, like, you know, this is one of the most beautiful tracks. You have the Chilka Lake. You have, it's such a beautiful coastline. Why do you leave this beautiful place and go somewhere, you know, to the other side of India? And they will say that, you know, whatever we do on our farms, every five or 10 years, there's a super cyclone which comes, destroys our livelihoods. So for us, migration is a sustainable livelihood. And that is an interesting way to look at it, that people actually sometimes, when you, when you think of migration as a risky strategy, actually it is a safer strategy than many things back home because you're always at the mercy of climate. And I found this when interviewing Bihari migrant workers because they have to face the flood of the Ganga River. Uh, in, in the hills, you have, of course, now landslides, but a lot of other issues. So climatic, maybe not climate change per se, though, of course, that is related. Climatic issues have been at the core of many of these migrations. And sometimes it's preserved in memory. For example, my father's side comes from Udupi, which is a district in you know coastal Karnataka. And in the Udupi migration wave, of course, everyone knows the Udupi migration wave because of the wonderful South Indian restaurants across India, in the Udupi yeah. chain of restaurants. And that's literally a mass migration wave which starts roughly about 1920s. And when you ask them, they all think, talk of some, something called as a flood. And there was actually a great flood in Udupi, uh, which started triggering these mass migrations out of Udupi, though they maintained connections with Udupi. So India is full of these district level histories where people remember an earthquake or a cyclone or a flood which trigger these mass migrations and the way the network goes, they typically don't go everywhere. They go to one place, one guy gets a foothold in the city or the new place and then, you know, the whole Biradri comes out there. So that is how India is kind of locked up to these millions of migration circuits. And you're right, the climate has historically played a, a very, very significant role. Exactly how to identify cause and effect is very challenging. And IBC, of course, is, 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 is a great example of something which, you know, researchers still date don't know exactly what happened if you accept that there was a shock, what happened after the shock? I think that's also a great uh, kind of place where more research has to be done. Yeah, and and uh, this is where multidisciplinary approaches, I think you, you've just put it so well in your book. I want to read this 
this whole page actually so so everybody bear with me it's just beautiful how he has summarized it you say one of one important reason for migration is forced migration due to involuntary displacements caused by natural disasters wars riots persecutions and development projects the numbers for this kind of migration are difficult to come by in surveys though in chapter 5 we will observe that since independence more than 40 million indians have been estimated to have moved in this manner the number of internally displaced persons and refugees in india from tibet sri lanka afghanistan myanmar and a few other countries currently stands close to 1 million people in specific episodes recounted later such as the aftermath of the partition in 1947 and the bangladesh war of independence in 1971 this figure had touched 10 million i just did a podcast on the punjabi pa, you know partition punjab partition and the horrors that it was so i actually can understand what is written here among voluntary streams marriage and movement with the household are important stated reasons of migration amounting to over 300 million people in india as per the census of 2011 almost completely dominated by women in short distance rural to rural movements however many of these migrations are also long distance especially from bengal toward the northwest as the latter has very few females in the marriage market on account of strong norms such as preference for a son more women have moved permanently than men throughout indian history due to the practice of village exogamy and it is their connections and migrant links that constitute some of the major invisible threads holding together indian diversity outside marriage migration the census of 2011 also revealed that nearly 10 million people had moved for educational purposes mostly males and towards urban centers the data on pilgrimage is not directly available but the periodic kumbh mela attracts over 50 million people today making it the largest human congregation to take place for a short period of time over 10 million indians have moved abroad primarily for work towards west asia and north america making india the world's largest recipient of international migrant remittances i mean this this page actually summarizes things so beautifully but on this issue of uh, now let's talk about the diaspora now as we are recording this podcast right now uh, i mean technically i should have been in mumbai but right now i am in in canada and you are in india so uh, i am also one of those millions who has temporarily migrated from his uh, native land for a few months over here and i'll be back then so so what so what is the story of the diaspora so so what what can we learn about the diaspora migration so firstly it's so varied right i mean indians are there in every part of the world yeah uh, uh, we have a lot of jokes about it in india uh, you know there's now a book called indians in latin america which is probably the last frontier where you don't typically think of indians but wherever indians are gone there's typically been a book of you know indians in italy and indians in you know egypt and, and so on but it's so varied of course there are two big phases right so first we have to remember that you know though we say you know these in- European interactions began in the 1500s world, and the British and the Dutch and all these people came to India. Uh, surprisingly, Indian rulers very rarely showed the same interest to go there. Right, so uh, you have examples of Chinese travelers trying to explore the world. Indian travelers, Indian explorers along the uh, sea, very good, you know, Maratha navies and so on, but didn't really show the ambition to reach the Americas. They had heard of it by the 1600s, 1700s, but they they not kind of set off expeditions to go there. so the first indians of our coast going around the world of course i'm talking beyond asia 
you have merchant mercantile kind of networks in central asia going back centuries are actually through as sailors or women going as ayas that is you know as as people looking after the children of the colonialists and so on and they start going across the world before the 1800 as well and of course some of them are taken as slaves but 1834 is really the starting point right 1834 bunch of britishers come and recruit a few people from place called jharkhand now uh, to take them to mauritius and that what is called as indentured migration over the next 100 years they took 30 million people away right 30 million indians started to go around the world and where did they go they went to what we call as caribbean so we know the west indies cricket team has a lot of indians many of them are descendants of that uh, they went to fiji they went to mauritius whole line of mauritius presidents traced their ancestry to bihar so this was the plantation world diaspora and what's interesting is you know you can test many of these social science theories about what happens to indians when they go outside and live there for 100 200 years for example does caste disappear right that's such a central question do you suddenly get casteless societies and again there's variation in some caste is still strong but in some places like mauritius you know caste is practically dissolved for all practical purposes because they start intermarrying very quickly so it gives you it sheds like it's a classic experiment right you take some people with very strong social values on a variety of thing and you send them on a ship and as one historian called them jahaji bhai all those differences untouchability caste dissolved once they were put on a ship and they all had to sit next to each other and they went to this completely new world and started completely from scratch right so one is how did these indians adapt and how have they started dominating even in these small small places that they went they started dominating and then in the 20th century you get this new wave of migration which we call as the new diaspora and there i call it the u turn u starting from three countries in particular usa so united states of america uk which is united kingdom and uae united arab emirates right so three us which started attracting a lot of indians uh the gulf wave interestingly started you know from uh, uh, uh these these petroleum companies who used to earlier recruit in, from bombay in the early 20th century and then the, they had a strange rule to recruit only uh, muslims for, for a particular period so those recruitment companies when started going down south kerala became a hub and from 1970s kerala became this huge pipeline to the gulf but of course other states have also joined uh, the us story you know uh, uh, is mostly post 1965 when they changed their immigration laws a lot of skilled labor moved there and the canada you know where you are there first it was the sikhs that like you have this huge punjabi story uh, in 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 canada so what's interesting about this diaspora a they vary across countries there's the rich indians like the us diaspora tends to be very rich uh, versus historically a laboring class in the gulf but of course today you have some very rich folk in, in dubai and so on as well take a country like italy right most people don't know indians in italy as a story you might know indians in gulf or indians in us now in the last 40 years one of the biggest migration waves from india outside has been from punjab to italy and from a few districts of eastern punjab to pretty much one district above milan in italy and what are they doing they're working in the dairy sector they've literally taken all the dairies you go to italy you eat the cheese all of it is pretty much made by these punjabi farmers from uh, punjab what it tells you is that migration is very networked it's very corridored when we say india to italy it's actually one or two districts of punjab to one district of italy right it's like that perfect matching and it's again that network one guy goes finds an opportunity gets his whole village there not the whole village but you know typically his family and then more people from those villages and so on and then you get remittances so those villages in those in that punjab are getting huge amount of money from italy now so remittance becomes a huge story and india i mean this is since i do macroeconomics you know we get 100 billion the number last year was 110 110 billion dollars from our migrants outside without that you know the rupee would not have been an 80 to a dollar it would have been way way 
you know, uh, it would have been much of weaker value because these remittances are propping up the balance of payments of India. And that's how the, the, the huge part of the current account deficit uh, is kind of sustained by these, these remittances. So it is very important from a pure macroeconomic perspective. And since the Vajpayee administration, they started recognizing that, you know, these, this diaspora is also important for us, right? Not just the money, but maybe they can invest. And they realized that because the Chinese were doing it, the Chinese also have a very vast diaspora and the Chinese were tapping into this diaspora saying, why don't you give us skills? Why don't you give us investment? So one clear industry which has lived off diaspora flows in India has been the IT industry, India's success story. Another industry is the pharma industry. So the policy level connection with the diaspora is a much more recent vintage. In fact, Nehru was, had, was very clear. He said, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. That is, you go, if you're in a new country, you assimilate with them and, you know, we, we are not going to look after you. But then the thinking started changing and said, okay, why don't we start engaging with these guys and build up soft power? So today the diaspora is also a key part of, you know, geopolitical focus. Now, of course, there it's a bit tricky because if you're looking at US, you don't know if the diaspora is supporting Republicans or they're supporting Democrats, right? And so you have to be very kind of neutral uh, in, 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 in managing that. But no doubt our government is now going all out for the diaspora. We have the Pravasi Bharat Divas we have the Pravasi Bharat Awards. You know, there's a kind of engagement which is coming now. You have the overseas citizenship, uh, you know, the OCI card and so on. So the diaspora has moved in the last 40 years from something vague, that is, you know someone outside, to now being a so-called strategic resource, which the government thinks it can use and leverage to meet its geopolitical end. So that's kind of been the shift in why these 30 million people outside now, uh, the old and the new diaspora, are seen as a strategic asset. You know, as as I am in Canada, last year I was gifted this book at the Great Indian Festival, Ottawa. This book was written by Nan Tandon and Prabir Niyogi. And it's called The History of Indians in Ottawa. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's just about the Indian community in Ottawa, how the Indian community came in Ottawa. You know, the so, so the first two Indo-Canadians to settle in Ottawa were Preetam Sunga and Ranjit Hall. These are the two first two Indians in Ottawa. And, and it's a beautiful book about how the Indian community came, their struggles, how they have risen to the top, how they the, they struggle today in some areas. It, it's a beautiful book. So I know this is a book about uh, migration, but hey, guys, I'm just giving a, a shout out to another book because we were talking about migrations and I thought... And and I love books, as as people know. I've covered so many books on this podcast. So yeah, if you can do check this book out also. If you are a, a, a Canadian, especially know what your people went through to come over here too. Like the struggles they had to go through. It's just fascinating what what people do, and and you know what I I find very interesting is one of the byproducts of migration. You you mentioned this. You know how does caste carry? Like I'll tell you. I'm married to a second generation Canadian, right? Of Indian origin. I mean, uh, uh, she used to find it very offensive when I used to tell her that I don't think you're Indian. She Earlier on, she used to find it very offensive. Then she started living in India. Now she does not find it offensive at all because she she realized she's, she's not very Indian. She's very Canadian in her ways. Now on this caste issue also, it's very interesting how I see no caste consciousness. Look, I have lived here enough now. I have lived in North America enough to have a proper... And because of being known in courts, because of the podcast, I get invited. And I meet second-gen kids. 
and I meet first gen people. In first gen also, caste has pretty much died here in North America. Second gen, though, it is non-existent. They don't even know until they, they are told you are this. They don't even know. Very, very interesting is, I think in somewhere in the discourse, uh, in my view, people confuse rituals to caste identity. People confuse one with the other. Now, I'll tell you what I see over here in the diaspora, because we are on migration. They cling on to their rituals like anything. Boss, yeah. these guys are way more ritualistic than we are in India. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like yeah. they do everything to the dot. Yeah. They will not change. Because are, you know, the, are the Pujaris local or they ship from India? The Pujaris come from India. Yeah, that's that is something I find not changing. There are some second generation pujaris. I'm not going to say they don't exist, but hmm. the majority, yeah, dek, aisa hai na ki 70% diaspora aaj bhi first generation and, and the yeah. number doesn't change, right? It has been consistent. Yeah. 30% is second generation, 70% is first generation in North America on average. Yeah, true. But a lot of these folks, right? Like my father-in-law, he came in the late 60s, early 70s. I, I don't remember the exact, I think 72 when my father-in-law came. So 50 years almost. My father-in-law came to Canada. My life is more Canada. It's insane. So now a lot of these people, right? They had a India when they came here. Then you had the second round in 80s. Then you had the third round in 90s. Then... Post the tech migrants, right? Yeah. The tech migrants are very different yeah. from the early migrants over here. So how, in your study, so how did you find this cultural bit? Like, how does culture carry? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, this is a, this is what people call it assimilation, right? And in, in, in immigration theories, you have these two classes of things, the salad bowl theory and a melting pot theory, right? So in, in American social science research, for example, the salad bowl is where you basically have all these things. You have a you have lettuce, you have fruits, and everything is sticking out, and you eat. And the melting pot is where everything gets assimilated. And if you see, you know what this presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is saying is he's saying, look, we are all essentially one. Right. So he's kind of contesting this idea, this idea that this diversity. He's like he's saying that you know you should be united. We have one core American identity, and this is a constant battle. That is of, Canada versus America. Sorry to butt in. Canada is the salad bowl. America is the melting pot. <laughs> that is what you know. People are typically uh, typically projecting as. Uh, see, assimilation happens at two broad levels. One is, are you assimilating? So, if if the first generation guy who's gone abroad, you know, how quickly is that person assimilating to the place that they're going to? It could be U.S. It could be you know East Africa, uh, Kenya, uh, and then the question is also about how much are you letting go of the origin, right? And both are possible. That is, you can still cling on to a lot of your home identity and at the same time maintain like a dual identity where you're also very well integrated into the other place. And here there are variations. There are some places where, you know, Indians, for example, a lot of the new student migration folks who, see the first guys who went, they had to use their community resource, but they also had to engage a bit with the local population. You get this contrast paradoxical thing where now once you have a stock of Indians in a particular place, say New Jersey or Toronto, if a new person from India goes there, you don't have to deal with the kind of local population, non-Indian population at all. right? So you have this paradox that the later the generation, these guys actually are more likely to be locked within the Indian ghetto, so to speak, 
than the guys who came early right and for me i feel that's a bit of a problem ideally from a normative perspective i feel if you're going to a place you know you should gel with them i mean you're going to a place you should know something about their culture about uh, a new thing and while you should not i would not you know uh, uh, take away my indian identity completely i would also want to kind of be a part i would definitely want to interact with people who are not like me right and i don't see that happening too much in the second generation guy not the second the first generation guys who are going now but locked within a fairly large stock of indian kind of for example take students you know uh when i myself have been an international student and the classic thing that happens is that all your friends are indian right so you go to an american institute or university in australia or canada and you want an international education but all your friends happen to be indian right uh and you don't have and the same thing i i faced when i was studying in london and i had to consciously break out saying you know look i have an opportunity to get exposed to different folks let me do that but without that it's very easy to get trapped into your kind of own world so i think that assimilation at certain level is important uh, otherwise you'll otherwise there will be a backlash and a massive backlash saying look these guys have come to a country we have given them everything and yet they refuse to even do a token amount of kind of you know, assimilation with us and historically that has led to a very strong backlash uh if you see in countries where for example look at france now where the backlash against immigrants is really strong uh there the, the assimilation has just broken down you know they have not really been successful in assimilating very well us of course over 400 years they've got their own way even if people have maintained strong identities at some level people have an access to the labor market people get access to jobs so overall you know there's some sort of a churning which happens so broadly my take is you know assimilation uh like i meant i i joke in, in in the book an indian has kind of uh kind of lost a part of the indian identity when the person uh stops taking a stops taking a pressure cooker and a mug you know <laughs> while going outside because both these objects are kind of classic symbols of the indian traveler and, and if you graduated from the pressure cooker to the rice cooker that is uh in just only you know a sign of assimilation uh because uh, these are you know very important objects that migrants uh, uh, tend to take uh but the whole backlash against immigration around the world today that you're seeing a large part of that is because its assimilation strategy so to speak is seemingly failing in many places uh and of course you know more about canada given your experience out there uh, but there is a real sense that immigrants are not doing enough to reach non immigrants and the non immigrants themselves in let's say in canada the indigenous or the white folk uh, who migrated earlier uh, are not doing enough to reach out to to the others so there has to be a real sense of interaction in in any place and this is of course international migration but the same can be said of internal migration in india right so when a when a tamilian comes to mumbai you know you want a tamilian to meet the bihari the up there's some sense of if all the tamilians are going to be in one tamilian quarter of mumbai yeah, that's the same thing as indians kind of being locked up in a particular place in say new jersey yeah and and i think look uh, at the end of the day at a evolutionary psychology level this is a matter of cultural homophily right yeah. uh, birds of the feather flock together kind of yeah. thing let's say if when i came here it, it it also what i noticed and and i don't so whatever is about to come out of my mouth to the viewers and listeners i'm not saying this in a condescending way i'm analyzing my own journey as a as a guy so 2001 was the year i landed in 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 canada for the first time toronto canada i still remember walking out of pearson airport sitting in a car going to the highway and i was like are itni badi road as an mm-hmm. indian at that time the only yeah. thing we had seen was the mumbai pune expressway <laughs> if you remember yeah. you know exactly what i'm talking about through the tunnel 
होगा I don't know. Secondly, what happens when you come over here is, I still could assimilate because I was urban. So my mm-hmm. my upbringing as a Mumbai boy was more multicultural mm-hmm. in terms of you know I I was in an all Gujarati area. I mm-hmm. went to a very cosmopolitan private school, a very humble uh, you know kids from very humble backgrounds. Like all my friends, you know people were like pan wale ka ladka, rickshaw wale ka ladka, all kinds of things. We we were Marathi, Gujarati, Sindhi, Punjabi, Tamil, Telugu. All kinds of people were there, so I was very used to the idea of going from one multicultural place to another multicultural yeah. place. But what I have seen is a lot of cases in now. If you go to tier two, tier three, India, and those people come here, they find it harder. In my experience, so yeah. they tend to look for these. I don't know for the lack of a popular word, ghettos, similar yeah. areas. and that's where i think the ghettoization happens and it's just a human condition what what i have noticed is the ghettos only remain till the first generation mm-hmm. the moment they have a child yeah their child is so canadian yeah that child goes out of the ghetto yeah Th- that's been the trend yeah and then of course there's an identity crisis kind of a thing okay you know to fit in with the larger thing what they're learning in their textbooks was what they're learning at home so that's sort of a churn that that happened and you see I mean, of course, there's a classic. Also, uh, like you know, in Britain, there's this BBCD was a was a word, British-born confused Desi, and yes. almost all these countries that Indians are going, they have this second generation versus the first generation classic deaf, right? And technically, if if you're a parent, you know, I mean, if you've kind of if you're proud of both the identities, the identities you come from and the identities that or the country that you're going to, I don't particularly see why they should be a deaf, but clearly this is something that is a is a very Uh, uh real experience in, in in many countries yeah and and to me i don't uh, i don't begrudge people at times but yes i do understand uh migration can be hard now in my own story right my my grandfather migrated from punjab my mm-hmm. father's father my father was born in mumbai i am born in mumbai um my grandfather came from amritsar now in the story of you know i was looking at uh, migration of communities like the community i belong to khatris now exactly. khatri population uh, as per the 1901 census of british mm-hmm. india of punjab mm-hmm. 37% khatris were in what is called indian punjab today yeah. uh, 50% khatris were in pakistan mm-hmm. and 13% were spread dispersed all across now why i started following this is i was like why are there so many khatri spread and then somebody told me are bhai aadhe to pakistan mein the to kya karenge population jab wo exchange hua to to aana hi padega unko and then i started realizing can you believe like i for the first 15 years of my life my 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 family did not find it important to tell me my nani was from lahore like it was an information they did not even think it is important to tell me they, they didn't care ki meri nani लाहौर से आई थी और मेरी नानी को माइग्रेट करना पड़ा था दे लिटरली डेंट केयर टू इन्फॉर्म मी अबाउट समथिंग लाइक दिस है मेरे को बताया भी नहीं 
बट लेटर ऑन वेन आई यूज टू टॉक टू माई नानी देन आई गॉट इंटरेस्टेड कहाँ लेते थे लाहौर में क्या होता था एंड देन आई स्पोक टू सम लाहौरीज नाउ थ्रू सोशल मीडिया i i have a few friends and then they they actually confirmed the place also it exists even today that road exists mm-hmm. that area exists mm-hmm. so that that's the story of human migration and and to me what interest what what i found fascinating in your research is like the you know the tables where you talk about the percentage of indian diaspora globally like how that has changed to although asia still is if from what i have understood from the yeah. numbers asia is still the number one spot for indian migrants yeah. but north america boy has it taken over right yeah yeah so one big shift within asia is east asia 100 yes. years back people were going to burma like i keep saying rangoon like today's dubai was 100 years back rangoon rangoon you famous song mere pe aa gaye rangoon you know i mean they are real cultural markers uh, in in a public psyche as well Burma was where people were really going. I mean, they were working all sorts of odd jobs, taking these steamers, going across the Bay of Bengal. Then you have Malaysia and Sri Lanka. You know, so these three were really the hub 100 years back, apart from few plantation colonies. And then across the 20th century, it moves from East Asia to West Asia, so mainly the Gulf countries, uh, and then of course North America. Though of course that's of more of more recent vintage, you know, uh, 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 much more skilled labor. Uh, but I, I just want to come back to the thing you're saying about your own first, uh, you know, family migration of Khatris, uh, because there's a whole chapter in my book on business community migration, yeah. uh, and the Khatris really interesting because, you know, like your experience, the Mahindras, for example, very famous family which moves to Mumbai again, Kandivli, they set up a plant, uh, and that is a classic, you know, example. And the Bollywood, I mean, much of Bollywood itself is yeah. is reflects Khatri migration stock uh, into this. And uh, one of the things while reading this book. for both uh, researching this book for both internal and international migration i realize how strong business communities have been in this story business communities have really gone around the world uh, especially sindhis for instance virtually every uh, port of the world had a sindhi small shop uh, dealing with certain things so i really you know enjoyed researching that as well uh, for this project yeah and in fact you know one of my biggest grouses on a very serious way i'm saying you know i'm a punjabi punjabi migration punjabi trauma has been discussed a lot bengali trauma has been discussed a lot it has it's you have enough books because people don't realize bhale partition hui kuch mila bengaliyon aur punjabiyon ko fir bhi kuch mila yaar bechare sindhiyon ko to kuch nahi mila that's true they yeah. literally lost everything and and you know i and i am guilty even as of now that i have not done a single podcast on mm-hmm. sindhi trauma and I, i and i and i declare myself as mm-hmm. you know because i am very serious about this issue i very, feel very strongly about communities in india which is mm-hmm. why i fight so much uh, for for the scst community and their rights is because i strongly feel for people yeah. who have faced trauma like that and you know the sindhi community they are such a resilient community of india that they, they they lost everything Yeah. यार उनको क्या मिला सिर्फ पंजाब सिंध गुजरात मराठा में सिंध का मेंशन मिला उनको कुछ नहीं मिला मैं उधर से ही तो हूँ यार मैं तो चेंबूर वाला हूँ मैं चेंबूर से हूँ मैं मैं आज भी सिंधी खाना खाता हूँ हमारे वहां पे चेंबूर कैंप एरिया है वहां पे वो जो एक रोड है जहाँ पे झामा है जो ओरिजिनल झामा वहां पे झामा है और भी सारे सिंधी तो है उधर सिंधी खाना खाते हैं दाल पकवान हो गया और भी चीजें हो गई एवरीथिंग इज अवेलेबल ओवर देयर इन चेंबूर एंड एंड 
the, these communities and and you know the story of migration you know you you talk about the hutus and the tutsis and the bloodshed you know you you talk about the contrasting visions and to me the the one debate and i was so glad that in the last chapter you know you begun with the contrasting image of how ambedkar mm. was like go migration nikolo yeah. yahan se you know the famous ambedkar line the village is nothing yeah. but a den of con- communalism basically he said villages suck and the yeah. complete opposite that was gandhi the father of the nation saying oh village life awesome mm. don't go around i hate railways mm. gandhi <laughs> was completely opposed to yeah. that idea and he was very well traveled also <laughs> yeah and and irony of ironies he traveled irony. all the way and then yeah. you know the one guy who's not liked in the left of india let me tell you one of savarkar's biggest seven shackles was what mm. overseas traveling yeah <laughs> he said samudra bandi the exact yeah. word savarkar said was yeah. tum kis kism ke log ho tumko bahar nahi jana <laughs> yeah savarkar had said he savarkar's criticism of his own society hindus yeah. was tum log yaar samudra bandi karke baithe ho are bahar travel karo and yeah. and to me you you know i i actually want to commend you how you beautifully start that chapter by narrating how ambedkar thought of something and yeah. how gandhi thought of something and these are contrasting views where uh, like I, i tell a lot of these right wing guys you know who uh, look it's not a, no surprise that my podcast has a slightly more right wing brand i never hide it but i always tell my right wing folks i was like yaar tum log tum log ne story of hinduism padhi hai wo asian areas mein kahan se pahuncha hinduism wo travel karte the na nahi to wo kaise pahunche wo travel karke hi pahunche na ha conquerors nahi the magar travel to kiye honge ya the chinese yunsang coming fahin coming then taking ideas back so if you don't travel you learn don't learn so that was one of the biggest constraints like what you said no that savarkar was exhorting us to break it's amazing as to how long that system of you know kalapani uh, or don't go don't cross the seven seas and so on persisted because even gandhi when he was going for his studies in london the first thing we know about gandhi is he's trying to convince his family ki bhai you know i i'm going to i'm getting studied it's okay as late as 20 years back you know the udpi shri krishna temple uh there was a fight between who's going to be the next religious head and one person tried to pull down the other by saying oh but this fellow has gone to america and kind of broken you know the rule of going to crossing this is 20 years back so you know this this constraint that many many indians face of traveling was really bizarre and thankfully people eventually broke through that taboo in the 20th century uh and uh, and ambedkar i mean you know this chapter ambedkar it's about development uh i'll start you know this i i once had an exam question okay it's called uh, uh, i was giving some exam called net which qualifies you to teach and i failed that exam uh and uh the first question of that exam was state the problems associated with rural to urban migration aisa na ki pros and cons and all it was just state the problems and i wrote a long essay about how it's not a problem you know, more people should move and migration is a great thing and maybe that's why i failed, failed the exam but that's the def- default assumption in india is a very gandhian notion that if people are leaving villages to cities something must be wrong in the villages and hence if only we give everything in the villages then nobody will have to move to the cities and hence our cities will not have overcrowding and so on and to me this is this goes against everything we know about developmental experience of the world where every country in the world has urbanized it's the one constant law of economic development people do tend to leave villages 
they do tend to leave the backbreaking farm work and they do want to typically aspire to live in small towns or big cities. Um, and uh, this Ambedkar got bang on, of course, from his personal experience, from a village, went to a city, went to Columbia University, saw the world. And from his perspective, education was key to liberation. Right? And Gandhi, of course, he said that, you know, if there's caste oppression, you can move, but otherwise stay in the village. And to me, until the last 10, until just 10 years back, the policy discourse in India was also, you know, let's do rural development to stop migration. And, you know, since I'm now also a bit into policy making, it's good to see that policy discourse now moving to a point where people are saying, let's facilitate safe migration. That is, let's assume that migration is inevitable. And how do we make lives of migrant workers better? And if you do rural development, don't think that people are not going to move out. You know, that's the biggest problem. Even NGOs who are doing rural development work and all, they often say, oh, itna paisa dala, but people are still leaving. But people will leave. You know, that is the ground assumption that a lot of uh, development discourse in India needs to recognize. Uh, and some of India's richest places like coastal Andhra, which is very fertile, very rich. People, the first thing that they did with money was to go to Guntur, then Hyderabad, and now the US. Right. So this aspiration to move is there. And uh, India is going to urbanize, uh, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, and we need to plan in advance for that, with more cities, more towns, and so on. Uh, uh, and that's why I argue in this chapter that the Ambedkar, I take a very strong view on this, that the Ambedkar, Ambedkarite vision on rural urban migration is the right way to think about it, uh, rather than the Gandhian yes. one. Three cheers to Ambedkar and urbanization. Urbanization <laughs> is awesome. Oh, yes. yes. Urbanization is awesome. It is amazing. We, we need better urban centers, more urban Absolutely. centers. Yeah. And no, no offense, you know, if you want to live in a village, you like the village life, all the best brother and Absolutely. sister. It's about choice. I mean, we have to recognize that people's choices are geared more towards cities and villages. Uh, it's not saying kill the villages, by you know, I've yes. given talks at uh, Ministry of Labor folks and they're like, are you saying neglect villages? And I'm saying, no, you, you just recognize that the more you invest in villages, it might be the case that more people leave and that's fine. You know, the more people get educated and they leave, that's fine. It's It should not be seen as a failure. You know, that is, it's a kind of a paradox, but it's very hard to kind of bring this basics uh, uh, in, into many government officials that have, have seen it over the last uh, few years. For example, the One Nation, One Russian card. Great scheme, ensures portability. You can access social security anywhere. Uh, yes. But we had to wait, you know, 75 years until we got to a place where we can start talking about portability of social security. So it doesn't matter which village you're in. You should be able to access social security anywhere in India. I mean, that should be the ideal architecture of social security provision. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more with you, man. I have always been a great votary. But before we wrap it up, I actually wanted uh, to, you know, I, I, I heard the book on Audible, but then I took out a few images and I wanted to share these images from my sure. Kindle. You know, this is the photo of Malik Ambar. And uh, this is uh, the this one touch, yeah. But I wanted to show this one photo the most because it's from my neck of the woods. This is a migrant family from Rajapur Taluk in Ratnagiri district in Chembur. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, it, I had it, taken students to Ratnagiri and we uh, interviewed this family. And this is symbol. This is, is a symbol of what I call the Great Indian Migration Wave. Where the man goes and the you know family is left behind, and the man spends 20 years in the city, sends back money, and then finally comes back to the village. And then that fellow's son goes to the you know city and works and so on. So the gentleman you see here, 
he was working in the city and when he came back the son that you see in the picture he went to mumbai and this is generate it's going on for generations you know and uh, like i say ratnagri where these uh, folks are from is uh, famous for mangoes all of us know alfonso mangoes but it's also famous for mangoes yeah. <laughs> mass migration of men yeah. uh, and families left behind for it so this is a photograph from a personal collection taken from a a, a trip i done with students actually in wow. in ratnagri and a lot of this work has been done through field work uh my initial phd also you know i i used to sit in the general compartments of trains uh, uh and and interview migrant workers and that's the best way you understand migration in india internal migration is to just travel by trains in the general compartment uh and uh, yeah that's also great for the pressure cooker yeah, yeah this is, i love this yeah <laughs> this is about canada this is all about you <laughs> in his room otherwise he threatens to immigrate to canada <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great one I love this. Uh, you know, and I I had such a good time reading this book. I I I can't express this enough. I I had a great time reading this book. It took me to my own journey. I just looked at myself because you know my friend Razib Khan always says, uh, you know, you're more global than I am, man. Because I'm just someone who lives in America. You are all over the place. Two months you're in America, two months you're in Canada, then six months you're in India, then you're back somewhere else, then you're in England. You are now, uh, you are now the true product of capitalism. You are a true globalist. <laughs> I'm cosmopolitan. Yeah. Yes, I'm cosmopolitan too. But uh, Chinmay, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I uh, but before we wrap it up, any new projects that you want to tell everyone about before we wrap it up? Uh. lots of stuff uh i wrote my first book in 2018 second book in 2020 the joke is uh that i wrote my first book on migration and then we got a migration crisis in 2020 <laughs> people had to walk back unfortunately and then i wrote a book in 2020 on pandemics and then 2021 we got the brutal second wave <laughs> where a lot of people died so people have told me to stop writing books because they're like leading indicators of potential crisis in the future so uh but on the on the most serious note uh i'm working on different projects uh, i teach a course on business and economic history so at some point i definitely want to write something related with like you said capitalism in india and how it's evolved over time so something about businesses and how you know they've 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 traveled over time uh, uh, but i'm still continuing to doing lots of stuff on migration uh, so I, i'm some uh, the next book is not going to come out anytime soon uh, but there are a bunch of projects which which i'm i'm working on um, and uh, also lots of student projects which i love to kind of supervise uh, So at a very small scale, we're coming out with a—I mean, it's not a book, but it's a small kind of a piece with students. It's called the Small Business History of Ahmedabad. Uh, it's looking at Ahmedabad, oh. where I'm based, uh, and all it's looking at documenting the heritage of business uh, uh, at the small scale. So these are hundred-year-old establishments. Uh, so these are small projects. But the next book, uh, I'm a bit tight-lipped. I don't want to jinx it. So whenever it comes uh, in a few years, uh, I'm sure I hope to be back on this podcast for that. Yeah yeah I I really look forward to it man I I and I mean every word of this I I did not even know and I was citing your paper on on uh, urban policy and uh, people who watch this podcast will vouch for that like I have cited your paper multiple times you know like I told you offline the paper where you talk about how what percentage of India yeah. is urban and uh, i i've been reading you i think you write regularly for the indian express too if i'm not mistaken yeah you, you have saying. yeah so i've been reading your work i enjoy reading and my my whole passion is i i target every year 40 to 50 books non fiction 
read That's papers, read, read, read articles. And then this podcast, you know, I started this podcast as a true believer in heterodoxy. Like you go wherever you want to go. You, this, this, like the Natya Shastra chapter first, where, you know, the Indra, Indra's, uh, Indra's uh, solution is when the Devas mock the Asuras and the Asuras take objection. And then Indra says, this platform will be the one place where everything will get discussed. So I, I, I took great <laughs> yeah. inspiration from that. So, but yeah, thank I, you very much. I, I just end up putting on, you know, I was reading this book called The Argumentative Indian, which I think is, in a way, what you're doing out here, which is written by Amartya Sen. And it's interesting because your podcast is named The Charvak uh, uh, Podcast because Amartya Sen apparently, you know, was once in his book, or I think it's the same book. Uh, he was, I think, talking to his father or grandfather. Uh, and the you know, person, the grandparent asked him, okay, so what do you believe in? What is your ideology? And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm atheist. And his grandfather said, oh, I see you have comfortably placed yourself in the Charvak school of philosophy within the larger Hindu philosophy system. So, so that was in a book. There's a reference to Charvak in the book called The Argumentative Indian. And I think that's kind of a good summary of what your you know, podcast is about, The Argumentative Indian and The Charvak. Yeah, I, in fact, I'm going to be writing a book. I am in the process of writing a book. Yesterday, Wonderful. I wrapped up my fourth chapter, um, first draft, which is going to be called Gnostic. And my tagline is going to be why I am not an atheist. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Looking forward to reading it. Yeah. yeah. So once again, Chinmay, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right, guys, uh, before we wrap it up, once again, in the description of the video or the audio, if you're listening to the audio right now, you will find links to buy Chinmay's books. So please go and buy his book. And uh, we will also leave uh, Chinmay's Twitter handle. So you can, or X handle, yaar, jo bolna. X sounds so weird. So I'm just <laughs> going to say Twitter handle. So, you know, you can go follow him over there. And if you like to support my podcast, well, you guys know the drill. You this is a member-driven podcast. So if you can, please try to support the podcast by joining the membership program. So whether on YouTube or Patreon or on Fanmo, join the membership program. If not, buy the merchandise. If not, just like the video, subscribe to the channel, ko, comments, rakdo, or just leave a rating on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you are. Please keep supporting the Charvak podcast. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.